Every week on this show, I talk to smart culture critics and experts about big pop culture stories. We have incredible conversations. And we never get to include every great moment. Welcome to Pop Cultured. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Today, we're revisiting a couple of those great conversations and bringing you some moments you haven't heard yet. Things we talked about that really stuck with me and our whole team. Hari Kundabolu is a comedian, writer, and filmmaker. You might know him from his documentary, The Problem with Apu, or his Netflix special, Warn Your Relatives. I was doing a show in New York for 20 people, and I was bombing. Like, it was going terribly, which, by the way, when you're bombing in front of 20 people, it doesn't even feel like a show anymore. It feels like you're disturbing a dinner party. (laughs) Who brought the asshole with the microphone? And I called him up the other week because we wanted to talk about how our ideas about what's funny and what we think is okay to joke about are changing. We covered so much ground, and he shared a really great story that we didn't get to include. So we're going back to that interview. Hurry is such a great person to talk to about this because, first of all, he is funny. But he also explores this exact question in his own work. How is our media changing now that a way more diverse group of people is making it? What does more representation do to our comedy, our TV, our podcast? Are we getting too sensitive? Is there even such a thing? With him, it's a professional question, a philosophical question, but it's also a super personal question. I mean, I don't know what it means to be more sensitive. I think sensitivities change over time. You know, certainly when a large part of the population doesn't have access to media or the opportunity to say anything without penalty, you know, people of color or marginalized groups, then can you say that those groups are sensitive if they're not even being heard? Do you know what I mean? So as you have like more people of color in public spaces, more women, more queer folks, trans folks, being able to say what they want and also being able to speak up for themselves, are they being more sensitive or are they finally being heard? So whenever I hear people say that, it just makes them feel old to me, to be perfectly honest. It just sounds like they're saying, oh, the kids these days, you know? And also, I think every generation changes and it's a comic's responsibility to try to keep up to date, just like you are with technology, just like you are with current events, like to understand where society is at at that given point. And it's not to say you can't wax nostalgic about the way things used to be, but I think to stay relevant, like, part of it is to know where we're at. The idea that we're all too sensitive now, I just, I'm, I'm sorry, I just, I have a tough time buying that. You did a documentary, The Problem with Apu, and it's about the character Apu from The Simpsons. You sort of explore the way that Indian characters, whether it's through like a cartoon like The Simpsons or other comedies, have been portrayed throughout the media. Like Simpsons has been going on for years. It's won Emmys. It's like a very celebrated show. But there's this like really sort of racist character on this show, too. What do you think has shifted in that marginalized folks are able to sort of give those critiques? And how do you think we've adapted as a culture to that? I mean, the thing I was criticized for, one of the things I was criticized for is the show's been on 30 years. Why did you just now say anything? And my answer to that is because I was just now allowed to say something. You know what I mean? Like, you either aren't allowed to say anything because you aren't given access to say what you want to say, or 
like you're worried about your career and there's just so few of you in the field and when do you get an opportunity and have enough power to say something? In addition to the fact that I'm sure a lot of us who are South Asian might have said something before, but we were all like eight, nine, and 10 when the show came out. So like, what did you expect? I mean, that's kind of part of the, the point. Like there wasn't any other representation at the time. That was the most dominant and at times the only character that represented us. And it wasn't necessarily fair for that to be the only representation. So, you know, I think that it's a really fascinating time because people are actually allowed to speak up and challenge things. And also the thing about these kind of stereotypical representations is that they're singular. They aren't complicated. And so it's kind of the same joke over and over again in a way, right? Like the idea of, you know, you, on one hand, you could say, I can't say the things I used to say anymore. On the other hand, it's like, yeah, it's called creativity. That means you've said those things before. Other people have said those things before. I've heard those racist jokes in a bar. Like, what is your responsibility as an artist? And I think that's why this time is so exciting is that we're allowed to complicate our vision of things. And that makes for more interesting art. Staying on the topic of sensitivity, you know, we're talking about how audiences are accused of being sensitive, but comedians also seem really sensitive. We're like the most sensitive. Are you kidding me? Everything that upsets us, we have to talk about publicly. I think that makes us. Ex- that's why when, when, when other comics were giving me criticism about, like, you know, oh, you you have to be a killjoy. You're ruining comedy, and I'm like, comedy is all about talking about the things we don't like or that upset us or that annoy us. So how come this is not touchable? Like everything we do is touchable. I thought there were no rules in this. So yeah, I mean. It, Comedians are incredibly sensitive. Hurry has a story about this. It happened 10 years ago at an arts festival. He told the story on The Moth, which is a live performance show and podcast and radio program. And I wanted him to tell us about it and what happened on that stage. I was in Edinburgh, Scotland, and it's a place where, like, I'm one of the few people of color that was there. The Edinburgh Fringe Festival, Margaret Cho was there, W. Kamau Bell was there. There weren't that many people of color. There weren't that many people of color from the U.S. performing at this festival in Scotland. And at that point, a decade into comedy, one thing I had gotten used to, didn't necessarily like, but I was used to it, was getting racist heckles. Less so now, but still, that's a thing that happens, and back then, I would get those things and have to deal with it, either eat the insult, pretend it didn't happen so I don't disturb everyone else in the show, like they don't need to know what just happened, or I respond to it. And especially when the people who are saying it aren't screaming it out, they're saying it loud enough for me to hear but not everybody else, it makes it even harder because you have to decide, am I going to disrupt my show or am I just going to eat this racism and move on to the next thing? So I'm in Scotland. I dealt with a little bit of that. But more than that, it was being the only one of a thing, you know, that feeling of like there aren't that many of us here. And also like a lifetime of doing comedy in America where I gotten used to things like that. So after feeling alone and with that history, there was a point in my show where somebody heckled something that to me sounded racist. I'm just going to jump in here to say that on The Moth, Hurry explains that he thought the person shouted Palestinian power. And in the moment, he thought it was another sarcastic crack about his brown skin. And I got angry and I threatened violence. I was so pissed off. And then all of a sudden, somebody in the audience is like, that's not what she said. Which, first of all, the fact it was a woman, I didn't even know it was a woman that said it. Secondly, the thing that was yelled wasn't racist. 
It, if anything, it was kind of just benign and worthless, like most heckles. They don't make any sense. But it definitely wasn't something to threaten violence about. And it was this embarrassing moment of where I'm like trying to talk it back to the audience and saying, oh, I'm so sorry, like this kind of stuff happens. And I, I, I'm so used to the racism that when someone says something, I almost hear, I get used to hearing it as that because that's what it normally is. And somebody in the audience yelled out, too sensitive. And I don't think it, it was too sensitive. You know, I'm just, just sensitive. I'm embarrassed I responded that way. Part of it is understanding why people are the way they are. And I think those sensitivities make more sense. I'd probably be even less sensitive to those things if there were more of us, especially at the time, who were doing comedy, who were in the public eye. If that, like, decade plus of dealing with racist audience members wasn't a thing that was happening. Like, if the world was different, I think you handled those things differently. But when you're, you know, not used to it or... When you're super worn down by it, stuff like that's going to happen. Representation is something we've talked about a lot on this show. And it was at the center of another conversation I had that was so fun and covered so much ground, and we didn't get to fit it all in the show. It was with Trey Mangum, the managing editor of Shadow and Act. Which is a Black entertainment platform covering everything Black film, like TV, Broadway, web series. We talked to Trey back in February when we took a look back at the history and evolution of Black sitcoms. And I love to talk about television, especially classic sitcoms. I was a kid that would, you know, try to stay up late to watch reruns of like the Jeffersons and stuff on Nick at Night. And Trey also really loves television. So we talked about the arc of Black TV and how Black TV creators are influencing what we watch today. I think one of the things that's a a difference from some of the great shows we saw in the 70s to some of the great shows we saw in the 90s to now is also who's actually involved with creating the shows or who's in the writer's room, right? A lot of the shows of the 70s famously were created by Norman Lear. Now when we look at the 90s, a lot of those shows still had white showrunners and creators. Kelsey Grammer created Girlfriends. But those shows, their writer's rooms increasingly employ Black writers to write these shows, Mm -hmm. which may seem like a no-brainer, but (laughs) for whatever reason, it wasn't. Could you talk a little bit about that evolution, how we've seen Black creators become more involved with shows that feature predominantly Black casts? I honestly think it's kind of like an aha moment, because I feel like we see these shows, and I'm I'm thinking of the time when they first aired. I don't think anybody ever probably thought of that. They they probably think about, okay, who actually created this? <laughs> who created this show? And I think now we're just kind of getting in a space of awareness. A lot of things you see happening right now is like you may have a non-black or white executive producer, kind of like Kelsey Grammer did on Girlfriends. We actually sat down with Kelsey Grammer because he's promoting this Amazon docu-series called Fat Tuesdays about this Los Angeles comedy club that basically spurred the careers of a lot of black comedians. And he was talking about how what we kind of saw is probably what an ideal scenario could have been going on in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, is that if a Black creative needs that push to be in that spot, then, you know, using resources to make that happen, as opposed to white creatives being the ones who are in control. You know, it's been something that's been ongoing for years and years, but I think now we've been able to evolve to a point in time where Black creatives are the ones who are helming Black projects. 
there being in writers' rooms that are, if not all Black, mostly Black. I know several shows have all Black writers' rooms. The Netflix comedy series Family Reunion has Tia Mari, Loretta Devon, iconic Black stars. And, you know, they had an all Black writers' room for a children's skewing Black sitcom. So I think that we're just at a time now where we are more aware of how it's no point in having Black stories if if Black people aren't telling the Black story. Now, I was just having this conversation about how some of our favorite shows and the iconic ones we think about from the 90s don't hold up all the way, right? (laughs) It's so funny. Like, there's still parts of it. So Martin is the one I was talking to somebody about. People have this debate all the time. There are the people who either fall into the camp of, like, Martin wasn't funny. All of that stuff was aggressive and colorist. And there are people who fall into this, the funniest show that's ever been on television. If you notice, I didn't bring it up. You didn't bring up Martin. (laughs) So which which one do you fall in? (laughs) Um, I don't think I fall in either one. Um, I'm just not a diehard. Martin fan. Most of the time, if there's a Black show reruns on TV, I'll watch it most of the time. I don't know if I watch Martin reruns like that. You know, it's definitely of the time. I think now we're kind of, we're so pushing back against that today. But I think that Martin, it has the most polarizing opinions. Right. And I think one of the things that's hard about these conversations is because, like, we're talking about this as moments in time, not as things that have just been a constant on television. So there can be this sense that you want to protect all of these shows, right? Like, I don't want to talk badly about Martin because at the time, Martin was groundbreaking for what it was. Even though, you know, as my friend pointed out, who's rewatching it now, like, whoa, this thing has a lot of toxic masculinity. I was like, boy, that's what the, that's the premise of the show. But there is this feeling, even like there's the wider conversation going around about Cosby. There's that documentary Mm -hmm. that's out. We got to talk about Cosby in which people were talking about the pressure you feel to protect some of these shows because they represent this moment in time, because they are so few, right? They're so few and far between. Mm -hmm. So what do you sort of think about that? And how do you think we go forward and feel like we can feel protected or feel proud of these moments while also being critical Mm -hmm. of things that we need to be critical about? We can't just be stuck in the moment of not wanting to criticize something. Because even if you look back at older shows, I think that could be applied to like Tyler Perry's sitcom work and like some of his drama work. You know, people are just like, oh, he's providing jobs. He's doing this, that, and the third. But then it's like, okay, so you can't critique somebody because they're doing good in a certain aspect. And I think that it, it all boils down to representation too. Because I think a lot of people think that A, either all representation is good representation. Or we shouldn't complain because we do have something. But Black people need the opportunity to have maybe mediocre projects or projects that aren't necessarily critically acclaimed. Like everything doesn't have to be great by any means. And then if we don't critique the art, how do we expect it to evolve? So I think that it's better. And I think that like even you see now with shows like Harlem and Run the World, which kind of low-key have the same premise from, you know, surface level, but are two very different shows and can exist at the same time. No one needs to be like, okay, two shows about four Black women. What else do we need? But it's just like, they're also different shows. Right. <laughs> it's also too much pressure to have the culture riding on one, one or two different things. One question I always have about the folks from the 90s um, and the early 2000s 
Some of them had huge careers, like Will Smith is obviously a huge star. Queen Latifah, obviously a huge star. And there are others who have had like huge careers from TV. And there were also so many talented people who feel like they kind of fell through the cracks or like we were saying earlier, are just starting to get that recognition now. What happened to those people? I know you've been talking to people and going back for Shadow and Act. What happened to them? What did they do with their amazing talents? And how did they feel about the resurgence? It's just so interesting because the way social media is now, it's easy to keep up with somebody that we watch on TV. And though it may be a while in between your next gig, like you at least were visible enough where people can follow you. And fortunately, like with the 90s and early 2000s, some people didn't have that. And I guess the story that's the most notable from the recent few years is Jeffrey Owens, who starred on The Cosby Show. And then someone took a photo of him at Trader Joe's when he was working and went viral. And then after that, he just started getting all these job offers. And I think that it's so interesting because I feel like a lot of times industry just loves to recycle the same people over and over again. And I would hope that when people are, you know, looking to cast projects, they look to people who may not necessarily have gotten their due or need to be back in the public eye. Even recently, there's a show called The Family Business on BET Plus, and there's someone like Bernadette Stannis. She's going to be in her first regular TV role, I think, since Good Times. Now, all these years later, and I'm thinking like, wow, hey, wonder what this person is doing now. Even people who are like still popular in our minds, but we don't see on TV, like Countess Vaughn, who is one of the biggest sitcom stars of the 2000s. And you think about how we could utilize them better and like give it, also give them their flowers now because they need them. You know, these are people who were Black household names. And I guess checks are still clearing because the show's on syndication all the time. Right. <laughs> so I'm sorry for that in, they're probably fine. But, you know, you just wonder sometimes. One thing I try to do is at least keep the conversations going about the shows, about people who are on them. So even if they may not be at that same point they were then, they're at least knowing how big their contribution was to the culture. I was also talking to a friend about, see, I like, I love talking about Black TV, (laughs) about like our favorite shows. And we were trying to think of dramas from that era. Cause like now I think we have like, there's power if you watch it, there's BMF, there's all the 50 cent stuff on stars, right? And then there's like Queen Sugar on OWN, Atlanta. I think like there are shows now where they're predominantly black cast and we would consider them to be dramas. But I was trying to think of shows from the 90s I didn't really have any that came to mind. Maybe New York Undercover, but that wasn't all black. They had a lot of black people on the cast, or several. Mm -hmm. Do you know why that is? I mean, I'm just, I'm asking you to speculate at this point, but do you know why, like, there weren't many in the 90s? Well, for one, I think that they probably saw the bankability in sitcom stars. Because think about it from this perspective. Who mostly led sitcoms? They were comedians. So, like, you already have that buy-in, you know, or not even comedians, but like someone like Will Smith, who's like already like a virgin music star, people that kind of had that tie-in. Brandy for Moesha, Monique, Martin Lawrence, the Wayans Brothers, big names. And then if you also think about from like even the 70s, 80s and 90s, a lot of these shows are also spin-offs. So they spun off of a white show that they were a supported character on or something like that. So I think that there was just so much buy-in and you know, you already know that the sitcom format is going to work well for Black people. 
I don't think that they necessarily saw that with black dramas in the 90s. And honestly, it's something we're still going through today. I still think that there are a lot now and they're mostly on premium cable, but that's the thing too, though. We have HBO and own stars. We're just really now seeing that stuff honestly on broadcast networks. You know, there's Queens, um, which is a musical drama on ABC, infamously Fox's Empire, which a huge, huge show, but we didn't have those methods. The streaming world didn't exist. So especially when you're thinking about the demographic of people who tuned into not cable, but broadcast network shows, they probably want to see one, things that we're familiar with and things that are probably shorter form, because you know the comedies are shorter form and you didn't have all that time you had to spend with them. Luckily we have the resources and time and buy-in now to be able to have dramas in the same way that we had black comedies. Because for a while, black drama is really what rose within like this past decade. At the time when I talked to Trey, he had just interviewed the cast of Bel-Air, Peacock's dramatic reimagining of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. The first season of that show just wrapped up. It's from a super, super talented young writer-director, Morgan Cooper, who had who just created this viral short. It got Will Smith's out before it even got released, and he wanted to reboot it. See, for some reason you think this is a game. This is not a game, Will. Look at you. Look at you. The only reason why you're not in jail is because Uncle Phil called in a favor. Back in 2019, Morgan Cooper's short reimagining of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air went viral. And now, here we are. So now you actually have The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air being a dropping series. I talked to the cast about this, about, you know, there are already people going to have preconceived notions about going and they're going to think they know what's going to happen. And it's just interesting. With some reboots, it's hard. because, like, do you want to get the established IP? Do you want to already have people knowing a brand going in? Or do you want to get something wholly and fully original? If you look at it outside of the context of it being the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air's dramatic retelling or reboot, update, whatever you call it, you may think it's a, it's a solid show. But then are you going to watch these scenes and think, okay, this doesn't get me Uncle Phil? Are you going to think of those characters like Jeffrey's now like a house manager with the iPad or something like Hillary's an influencer? Other things like that that are, are different. Overall, on reboot culture, I, I get why it happens, because that's what's bankable. Now, especially in the age of streaming, they're selling shows worldwide. They want to recognize well name. And, and, and it employs a lot of Black actors, but it's just like, it's the, they're just with everything, is the pros and cons. Who do you think they're for? I wonder, like, what a reboot like Fresh Prince. Is it for us who watched it as a kid or for new audiences or what? I think it's a mixed bag. I think it's a mixed bag. Because, again, attempting to revive something or bring it back or do something else is going to be a conversation point. And it's just like, is it worth it? Is it worth it? In most instances, it's going to cause a stir. People, they may tune in and be like, okay, it's good. They may be like, oh, no, it's trash. It could vary, but they're getting that engagement. <laughs> they're getting that engagement at the end of the day. So it's just like, do you want to be a part of a fully new show? Do you want to be a part of a reboot? And at least know that you're going to have some sort of success to some degree. You know, it could be pain, could be critically acclaimed. You know, at least you're going to have people tune in and see what it's about. That's it for us today. We'll be back next week with a fresh episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend. Thanks to Hari Kondabolu and Trey Mangum for talking to us. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the podcast. 
and I work with a great team to make the show. Alicia Key is the show's producer. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. He mixed this episode with Ellie McAfee-Hahn. Graylin Brashear is our senior director of audio. 